Well, good morning. My name's Sam. Uh, you already heard that part. Last name, Nunnally. That was never said, so I want to make sure you can find me in the phone book. Um, so music really speaks to me, so I'll kick this morning off with one of my favorite artists, a guy named Ben Folds. He's kind of a piano rocker kind of guy, and uh, I love this song because it's uh, it's something we can all relate to, and it's autobiographical. It's something he went through and wrote into a song, and uh, the first verse talks about uh, ben really believing that his wife really understands him, gets him completely, almost like she can read uh, his mind or something, like he says in the song. In the end, he realizes that she's been sneaking around when he's gone on tour and uh, reading his personal diary. And uh, so that's how she knows him so well, um, which is, uh, if, if you've got a little brother or a little sister, you may expect that, but a spouse, I mean, that's that's more fatal attraction type stuff. That's uh, that's lifetime original movie territory. And uh, so it's a pretty funny song. But the last line of the chorus is the one that really caught my attention, which says, seems to me if you can't trust, you can't be trusted. That's a pretty profound statement. If we as humans can't trust others, then we can't be trusted by others. So today we're continuing our 12-word series, and uh, we're going to be talking about trust and its antithesis. We're going to be talking about doubt, trusting God and trusting each other. But before we get any further into that, let me tell you a little bit about me. Um, I've been attending E3 for about six years. Um, I have a uh, kind-hearted, wonderful, and I must say beautiful wife. Her name is Amber. And I have four kids, Claire Grace, Anigail, Ella Gray, and Mark. There they are up there. Um, and uh, they're great. They're my world. Um, I'm very proud of them. I love them very much. If you want to know what it's like to have four children, I'll give you my example from today. I printed out two copies of my sermon. One had uh, taco grease on it. Uh, the other had a large area of uh, chocolate. I do not know where it came from and uh, smeared across a large area. So I went with the taco grease because it's easier to see through, and uh, that's what I'll be working on off of today. So also love music. Uh, occasionally you'll see me playing uh, the piano or the bass guitar or something like that. I grew up in Thomasville just up the road. Uh, moved here about eight or nine years, eight, eight years ago. Um, and I have a little bit of an unusual professional history too. I got out of college, started working uh, for a Fortune 500 company in finance, jumped out of that about two or three years in and went into full-time ministry um, for at a church kind of like this and then like a high church where I wore a robe. I did that for a while too. And uh, I don't, most people don't know that. I really don't talk about it that much anymore because um, it's kind of a former part of, of my life. Then life took some unexpected turns and I chose to stay, uh, become a stay-at-home stay dad uh, when the kids were six, five, two, and six months uh, it's extremely, uh, extremely meaningful time in my life, and I have a great relationship with my kids because of it, um, mostly because I have a lot of stories I could blackmail them with, but also because they like me. But uh, on top of that, it was also the uh, most difficult thing that I've ever done. Um, so when I arrived at E3, my life was very much unraveling. I made friends with the staff, but not a lot of other people kind of sat in the back out of the way, and slowly over time, the staff helped me kind of uh, regain my footing and helped me uh, keep my faith throughout the process of kind of rebuilding my life into the wonderful life that it is uh, today. I absolutely love this church. E3 has been one of the constants in my life, and the friendships I have here are some of my deepest. 
and uh, I'm now back in the finance world. Uh, that's what I do full time. Um, and I'll be speaking to you today, not as a former pastor or anything like that. I haven't formally preached a sermon in almost a decade, so don't you know? Don't get excited. Um, <laughs> uh, but think of this more as a conversation uh, that we might have over coffee um, at a coffee uh, at a coffee shop, or maybe you know, two beers down, throwing darts at pockets. Uh, we might come up with this uh, conversation. So take every, whichever one of those works best for you. And uh, we'll go from there. So on to the topic at hand, okay? So this week we're going to be talking about unpacking the box of doubt. So our spiritual lives, like our homes, they, be- they can become cluttered as we accumulate stuff along the way. And regularly we need to go through the process of cleaning house, right? Um, and so that's what we're doing in this series. We're um, talking about 12 essentials, things that uh, we need, might need to unpack or declutter or clean out of our spiritual lives so we can kind of get back to the basics of the faith. Okay, so why do you sometimes have trouble trusting God? Well, everybody has trouble trusting God. Everybody. So if that's where you are, that's okay. That's why we're talking about this today. Doubt, not trust, is everyone's go-to when it comes to spirituality and mostly when it comes to our relationships as well. So no judgment here. You're in extremely good company. And trusting God is really what the Bible is all about. In fact, the Bible is the story of trust between humans and God. It's the story of us giving our trust to God, us taking it back from him and doubting him at every turn, and then links to which God would go to regain that trust and let us know that he's trustworthy. So let's start from the top. Let's start from Genesis and unpack this stuff a little bit, okay? So that's where our trust issues start. So God created Adam and Eve, right? And begins to develop a relationship with them. Now they have kind of a, a an agreement. Uh, we trust God. He takes care of us. That's kind of the way that goes. And they can pretty much do whatever they want in the Garden of Eden except eat from a particular fruit tree, right? And so the sin of eating that fruit is found in what it, stand, is what it stood for, which was the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to determine what's good, what's bad, and how to use those things appropriately. So why is that a big deal? Well, because we took that when we didn't have to. God never said he wouldn't give humanity the knowledge of good and evil. He just told us not to eat the fruit because we weren't ready for it. You know, kind of like a a toddler grabbing the keys off the uh, kitchen counter saying, hey, I'm going to go, you know, for a joyride. And you say, oh, hold on, Mr. Toddler. You're not ready to drive yet. You know, same kind of idea. So we weren't ready for it. So because God knew that we would exploit our knowledge, that knowledge for our own gain. And we do now in the world that we live in. What God really wanted was our trust. He wanted our trust. He wanted to mature us to a place where good and evil weren't used for our own gain, but were used for something greater, something better, something along the lines of what he would want, right? So we doubted God would do that. And so we grabbed for what we thought we deserved without his permission and without his involvement. We ate the fruit. So we doubted his words. We disconnected and we unlifed ourselves from the living God. And when we did, it absolutely crushed him. And that's the first twist in the biblical story that we all live, the history of God 
that we live today. So when God discovers what Adam and Eve, uh, that he trusted, that they trusted the serpent more than they trusted him and they ate of the fruit, he says, what have you done? Not like, what have you done, young man? But what have you done? What have you done? You have no idea what you've done, right? That kind of an idea. God's worst nightmare has come true. His companions that he made in his image rejected him for something that he eventually would have given them anyway. Our doubt changed everything for us. It changed everything for God too. Now, the Bible's a work of literary art, okay? It's truth through and through, but the story is told in such a way that we can kind of remember it. Lots of oral history, some memory devices in there, and sometime in our modern mindset, we miss some of these cues, some of these uh, narrative elements that help us understand our own story. So uh, if we look here at a passage uh, out of Genesis 3, you can notice on, you see the chapter 3, and then it moves over to the right side of the page there. You can see the prose coming from the top, and then there's a break, and then you see that it's written a little bit differently, right? That's because it's not prose anymore. It's not a narrative. It's a poem. Or it's a song, okay? And so that's the reason that it looks like that. So God bursts into song after we do this, right? After we eat the fruit to describe his grief and what's going to happen because of what we did, okay? So all of that, you can, you can read it uh, when you get the chance, but just basically to break it down, God starts singing at the top. He addresses the serpent first off, and he says, hey, Snakes, nobody really liked you to begin with. People certainly aren't going to like you now. That's where God starts, right? Uh, kind of obvious, we would think, but that's where, that's where God goes with that. The next thing he says is, uh, women, childbirth is going to be horrible, unnecessarily uh, painful for you. And then men and women are going to unnecessarily try to grab power, control each other in their relational dynamic. Before that didn't exist. It's part of, part of the curse, part of what happened after we disconnected from God. And then he talks to he talks to men. He says, men, you're going to work all the time. You're not going to see a lot of progress out of the work that you do. It's going to absolutely suck. That's what, he's, that's what he says. And then the last thing he says is, because you've disconnected from me, because you've disconnected from the life source of who you are, you're going to die. We're all going to die because we're unlifed. We're disconnected. And not because God desires it because it's the result of what Adam and Eve did. It's the result of that doubt, that lack of trust that sends this domino effect of history our way. So that whole passage is not a decree from God about how he's going to punish anybody. He's not shaking his finger when he says it. It's this grief-stricken song of what sin will do to our lives with our relationships with God, with each other, and in the history of the world. Imagine it sounded something like a, a really dark opera solo, a grievous one. So I booted up some Pavarotti for you to get the idea here. So this is probably what it sounded like. I think. Oh, <laughs> 
That's brutal, right? That's a song of God, a song of disappointment and grief and, and heartbreak, right? Um, it's heartbreaking for us that we chose to doubt God's character right at the very beginning of when that relationship was established. Now, the rest of the Old Testament is basically God attempting to get us to trust him again by repeatedly delivering us from bad situations that we find ourselves in. That's, really, that's that's it. That's basically the, the rest of the Old Testament. I'm going to walk you through it real quick. So the rest of Genesis involves murder, deception, greed, sibling rivalry. It's basically like a Game of Thrones episode on steroids. Uh, it's, it's totally rated R, and it's kind, of, it's kind of the way that the whole thing plays out. By the end of the book, we found ourselves in slavery to the, the kind of the national power of the day, Egypt, and, um, and we're, we're enslaved, we're, we're oppressed. So now at every turn during all of this, God engages all of these folks saying, look, you guys, you're a complete disaster. And if you'll trust me, I can help you, right? But no one really listens until Moses. Abraham does some, but then Moses is used by God to kind of deliver people out of, out of the hands of the Egyptians. And God surely thinks at that point that they'll begin to trust him again. We can reestablish, reconnect like in the Garden of Eden, but they still doubt him after that, right? So once they're in the promised land, you move on to the book of Joshua and, and God takes them to a new land. And the Israelites uh, find a way to basically get into trouble with all of their neighboring tribes. They're that, they're that neighbor that, uh, that's their bad neighbor that's right on the border and they do stuff to annoy you. That was the Israelites in the book of, in the book of uh, Joshua. They're, they cause problems and they fight with all their neighboring tribes. So God raises up leaders called judges. That's where the book of Judges comes from. And uh, to deliver them out of that. So when you hear the term God is judge, don't think of God, you know, judge law court. Think of God judging you by reaching into life and delivering you. Because that's where this comes from, that idea. Still, no trust. Doesn't matter what God does. You get the idea. They're just, they're just not doing it. So throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it's the same cycle. It's uh, people get into trouble. God delivers them. And they still don't trust him regardless of what he does. Overall, it's just a, basically a, like a, a dumpster fire of a history lesson uh, where God does this. And all the while, God watches with grief of the horrible life that his people settle for instead of simply trusting him, knowing that that would bring about so, something so much better than what they were settling for at the time. So throughout this whole passage, throughout all these books, throughout this history, you've got these prophets that God raises up to speak on his behalf. And you got people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea, all these different guys. They've all got their, their own books in the Old Testament. And throughout that process, they're, um, they, they speak for God's heartbreak. And you can hear them in their, in their writings. I pulled some out uh, for us to read through today just so you get the idea. Is Israel my darling child? My heart yearns for him. House of David, is it not enough for you to weary each other? You also have to weary God. You've rejected me, and you keep going backward. Have I not held my peace for a long time so that you do not fear me? How can I give you up? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. My heart is breaking within me. It's like fire in my bones. I'm so weary of holding it in. Have you ever been in a place where you're so you're in so much pain emotionally that it feels like someone set fire to your insides? 
That's how God feels. God suffers watching us act alone by doubting him. And against our own best interest, he often describes himself as like a spurned lover, someone who gives over and over and over again, but is only rejected every time in return. Have you ever been in a relationship where you gave absolutely everything to that relationship only to find that your efforts meant nothing? Maybe even they use those efforts against you to paint you as their enemy. That's how God feels with us sometimes. It's sad, but it's it's true. So by the end of the Old Testament, God is at his wit's end. He begins to do, he begins to think, you know, what can I do to make these people understand that I can be trusted with their hearts, that the disconnect that happened so long ago can be reconnected and things can move move forward in a better way for them. What can I do? And he says, I'll die for them. I'll die for them. His answer is the story of Jesus. See, God knew that we needed to see him as he is again. In John 14, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus, right? And so the cross was that ultimate expression of love. It's when people began to see, maybe for the first time, what God really looked like. How do you make a world of people trust you again? You do something so radical that they would never be able to doubt your love for them. They may not receive it, but they'd never be able to doubt it. If you ask God what he was like, he'd hold up a picture of Jesus bleeding out on a cross for people who doubted his loving character in hopes that they would actually trust him again. That's how God describes himself to us. And this is where Psalm 22 comes in. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22, our scripture for today, from the cross. And uh, it's important that he does that. We're going to talk about this for just a minute. So first off, it's important for you to know that throughout the Bible, people quoted the first line of a psalm as like the psalm title. Psalm just means song, right? So like a song title. So Jesus gets up there and basically shouts out the name of the song title of Psalm 22, which is, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's the first line of the song, <laughs> right? In the whole thing. Now we do this. We do this with hymns sometimes, right? So you feel free to sing along with me if you want. So what's the first line to the hymn, Joy to the World? There you go. There you go. Right. Some of you guys need to stop singing. That's pretty rough. I'm joking. You're fine. Um, what about uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? First line, right? Great is thy faithfulness. You know, what about Queen? Uh, I want to break free. We do that in modern times, right? I want to break free. First, first line. Or uh, what about uh, Guns and Roses? You know, welcome to the jungle. Right? That's the way it works, right? So first line. So Jesus is doing the same thing here. He quotes the beginning of this psalm in order to tell you that what's inside of it is what he wants you to hear. So this is what's inside of it. So psalms generally follow a three-part formula. Okay, And the first one is kind of this feeling of being betrayed or forsaken or alone. God, you've forsaken me. I'm alone. Where are you, God? Right? First part, first part of the psalm. The second part is to kind of go into detail and begin to kind of honestly and brutally describe what the painful circumstances are that they may be going through. You know, we heard this a little bit this morning. There are animals all around me. My enemies are here. I'm, I'm trapped in. You know, these kind of 
these kind of topics. And then third is kind of uh, the kind of the redeeming aspect. It's trusting God in the middle of whatever's going through. I'm gonna so anyway, all this stuff's happening. I'm going to trust God anyway. And that's the what Psalm 22 looks like as well. It starts out with David crying out to God because he feels alone and abandoned, right, and forsaken. God, why have you forsaken me? He's surrounded by people he can't trust. He feels alone. He feels unloved. He feels mocked for believing in God when other people around him don't believe in God at all. Sounds like today sometimes, right? So the middle part of the psalm goes on to great detail about about this, about being surrounded by enemies, why he feels forsaken, all this kind of stuff. And then the third part, there's kind of a switch around verse 23. David finds hope. He begins to talk about a God who cares, a God who's trustworthy, right? A God who takes care of his people, a God who loves us and can be worshipped, a God that we don't have to doubt. So that's why Jesus quotes that. So when you get down to it, there are really two things that, that Jesus is saying on the cross when he does this. First, he's giving us an example of what it means to trust in the most extreme of circumstances. Now, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve broke trust with God when everything was great. I mean, they had everything they needed, and they still doubted God. In this scenario, God is Jesus is in his most bleakest moment. And Jesus is saying it's okay to trust in the most bleak of moments, in the good times and in the bad times, right? Second, Jesus also clears up any confusion about the character of God. Remember, there's there's not any trust because people don't know if they can trust God, right? So Jesus begins to clear that up. Jesus says God on the cross is saying, your view of me is wrong. Your view of me is wrong. I'm not someone to doubt. Because of my love for you, I am worth trusting. And in this moment on the cross, I am doing whatever it takes for you to know that. Whatever it takes for you to know that. Okay. Theology lesson over. Sound good? Whew. Okay, we got past that. So, okay, let's get really, really practical about what trust and doubt looks like in our own life today. So we live in a world that does not value trust. I think we can all agree on that. Trust is seen as naive. It's seen as inexperienced. It's seen as unlearned, uh, unwise, childish, right? All those things. Now, we elevate the idea of doubt to a level of maturity and just good adulting. We think we say words like um, skeptical or cautious or level-headed or practical, right? We say words like realistic. I think I said that one like 10 times last week, right? When I didn't want to deal with something. Now, let's be realistic about this, right? So social media, the internet, all that makes it worse, right? Because we're no one knows what to believe about anything, sound bites on websites and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's pretty brutal. But if we're honest, what lies at the heart of doubt is suspicion, worry, mistrust uncertainty, hesitation. I want to do that, but I I don't know if I should. Insecurity, right? Now, those are all fancy words for a word that we try not to use anymore because we don't like the connotations of the word. And that word is fear. That word is fear. We don't like to admit that we're afraid. 
So we use other words. And then we also use clinical terms to describe our fear. We talk about anxiety or nervousness. We talk about stress-induced panic. And I believe in medical diagnoses and, and clinical health, medical, mental health. I believe in all that. But also just believe in good old-fashioned fear. You know? Good old-fashioned fear. And we're a people whose initial knee-jerk primal response to everything around us is to be afraid. It's to be afraid of things. We like to own our fear. We like to say things like my anxiety and take it in as part of our identity and let it define us rather than seeing it as, as something outside of us that's circumstantial that doesn't have to affect us the way that we, we see that it does. Doubt is born out of fear. Doubt is the child of fear. Doubt says whether you're age two or whether you're age 82, what are you going to do to me? I know you're going to do something. I know something's going to happen. This isn't going to go well. I know nothing's going to happen well in this case. So I just, I just need to know. I, I'm just not going to give myself to that in case things go bad, right? It says, what are you going to do to me? It says, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. I've been hurt a lot. I just can't put myself back out there, right? Now, trust is different. Trust is born out of love. Paul Young put it this way. He said, trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know that you are loved. Trust is the fruit of a relationship where you know that you're loved, right? So when you believe someone loves you, then you believe that they'll do their best not to hurt you, right? So trust requires vulnerability. It requires opening up our hearts to potential pain. But it's really just the idea. It's a little hard to describe, but it means belief. It means faith. It means commitment to an idea. Commitment to the idea of someone loves you enough to love them in return and trust that they're not going to, to hurt you. It's something a little more intuitive, right? It's kind of a gut feeling, an intuition. Maybe a little more spiritual. It takes very little effort for you not to believe someone. It takes very little effort to let that be your go-to approach to things. Life has given all of us plenty of reasons not to believe a single soul about anything, right? Hopefully that's not too honest for you today, right? And we can live that way. A lot of people would say it would be wise to live that way. But here's the deal. That's the most empty way to live life. So empty. So shallow. So unfulfilling. We can choose to live differently. And frankly, the links at which God went to gain our trust should compel us to do more than the basic minimum of not just putting ourselves out there as much as we might want to because we're afraid of getting hurt. So as we finish up this morning, let's ask ourselves a few questions based on Psalm chapter 22, okay? So, how many of you might be in the first part of Psalm 22? You're feeling forsaken, feeling abandoned. God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone? You couldn't trust anybody <laughs> if you tried and put your best effort to it, right? Uh, I And confession time, I've been in all three of these parts of Psalm 22. So maybe you're in that first part. You just, you just can't trust you're just in a place where you know that you just can't do it. 
And you're not even going to try because it's a waste of everybody's time, right? That idea. I have a task for you if you're in that category. I want you to play a game of pretend. Sounds odd, but hear me out. I want you to pretend that you are the focus of God's passionate, real, never-changing love. I want you to pretend that when you turn around, God is there smiling at you. And you can see the smile lines on his, his eyes. As you stare into eyes, his eyes, you see joy. You see grace. You see kindness. You see uh, a warmth that, that you rarely see in the eyes of people. And I want you to pretend that that's the truth. Because it is the truth. And eventually, if you pretend it enough, you'll begin to believe it. And it's from that place of understanding that healing happens and you can begin to trust again. You can begin to trust again because you know that God loves you and that he's going to take care of you. How about the second part? How many of you want to trust and you find yourself in the middle of the psalm? You're surrounded by enemies, read coworkers, attacked, you know, exhausted, whatever the case may be. You've got family that's difficult and dysfunctional and you start out at the beginning of the day and you're great. But by the end of the day, all that trust and and it just all ebbs out of the bottom of your feet. And you're like, why am I even trying this, right? You ever been in that place? I mean, I have. Life just finds a way of kind of eroding away trust as things build up during the day. I would say this to you. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be okay. You may not be able to trust all the time, but the fact that you desire to trust, the fact that you want to trust is, hey, that's better than, that's better than a lot of people, better than, than a lot of folks. The fact that you have the desire to trust will keep you grounded until things get a little bit better. So hang in there. Everything's going to be okay. What about the third place? How many of you are kind of at the end where you've said, I trust God? I mean, things aren't perfect all the time. And uh, you maybe have some nagging doubts in some areas. But overall, you've given yourself over to a life of trust in God. And you generally do a good job of trusting other people because you feel safe enough to do so. I would say, dude, way to go. <laughs> right? That's where we're trying to get to. It doesn't have to be perfect. And we're going to stumble, make mistakes. But if you're there, man, that's awesome. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. Keep keep doing that. Rest in God's love. And know that he will help you overcome those nagging areas of doubt in time. It's, it's not a race here. And there's not really an end goal you're trying to get to. It's a process. Enjoy the process. Enjoy it for what it is. And enjoy the fact that you're, you're doing great. So how do you know to trust someone? Newsflash. You don't. You don't know if you can trust anybody or not. Ernest Hemingway said this. He knew this. He said this. The best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them. <laughs> right? That's it. The best way to find out if you can trust somebody is just to, just to do it. Take the risk. Right? It's a gamble. So Jesus describes, he gives us a hint at what that might look like so that we can have an idea, kind of a direction to go towards with that idea. And maybe that could kind of be our litmus test with God and with other people. Jesus said in Matthew 11, he said this, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me 
and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that phrase. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Unforced, free, light. That's what a loving relationship of trust looks like. That's what it, that's what it feels like. With God, that's what it feels like with others. As the band comes back up, um, I'm going to read you one last uh, quote and kind of give you another illustration that will help you. So Alan Watts, he's a former Episcopal priest. He's a meditation teacher. He, he likened the idea of trust to effortlessly swimming in a, an ocean or something like that. He said this, to have faith is to trust yourself to the water. When you swim, you don't grab hold of the water because what happens? You'll, you'll sink, right? You'll drown. Instead, you relax and you float. Unforced, free, light, relax, float. You hear the, you hear the theme here, right? You can't float if you're holding a box full of doubt. You just can't do it. You have to let those things go. Doesn't mean they didn't hurt. Doesn't mean they won't even happen again. They might. You have to get past that. Just decide to let things go. It's easier said than done, I know that. And people have been through a lot. People have a lot of pain. I do too. You have to let go so that you can learn to relax and float. We may not be able to fully trust that easily, but I bet as a church we could probably doubt a little less. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good place to start. Amen. Amen.